All right. Welcome, City Light. Um, I'm just going to open this real quick in the Word and then pray, and then uh, we will get started. So I'm in Deuteronomy 6, um, 4. This is something that uh, I know in my family we often um, uh, quote this verse. And so um, this is after kind of the Ten Commandments were given. Um, and uh, Moses is kind of, you know, giving the second law. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. Father God, just thank you for giving us um, your commandments, Father. Um, thank you for designing us for who we are and uh, that you created us in your image uh, and that you gave us the great responsibility um, as mothers and fathers of children to lead them towards you, Father, that you're our perfect Father. Um, no matter what our backgrounds and our circumstances are, Father, that um, you will always be there. Your promises are true um, and you're consistent and they never change, Father. And we can rest in that and help us today, Father, or as we come together as a community to rest in those promises, but also pass those promises on to our children so they can look to you as the perfect Father. With all of our flaws, um, that they always have that to look at and so do we, Father. So uh, we love you. We, we ask that today might be an uplifting and encouraging day to build this body of believers up, to pass it on to the next generation as you command us to do, Father. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, for those that were here last night, we had a great night um, with Dr. Arlen, and he is back today to uh, kind of move on to the next uh, topic of what it's uh, like, obviously, to, to raise parents, or sorry, raise children as parents in the church. Um, and as I kind of mentioned last night, we have this awesome blessing and opportunity to, uh, to raise children to know the truth and the love of, that the gospel uh, has, has poured into us, and then we get to pass that on to them uh, in a world that sometimes can be pretty chaotic. So... Um, we're excited to dig in a little bit, learn from each other. That's going to be a big part of today is how might we learn from each other. Because um, one of the things that we have a goal for this is to start building more community at the parent level. We have a really awesome, thriving, young, uh, kind of young children's um, environment here. And uh, we want to keep fostering that. And one of those things is we want to thicken the lines between the circles, if you will, the, the relationship connections. Because uh, it's hard parenting. You know, I, I, my wife and I always joke, we're like, hey, when we were, we didn't have kids, we called that our single days. And, you know, once you, you have kids, it's a whole nother level. So um, it's hard, but it, it's worth it. And, uh, and we have a, a great responsibility and commandment from God to do so. So with that, I'm going to bring Arlen up. Let's give him an, mm. another warm welcome. And get well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Clinton. Good morning, my friends. Wow, that's a weak one. Thank you. Yes, please. Thank you. Good morning, my friends. Yesterday, I had a surprise uh, when I stepped off the podium. I heard that Pastor Nate's wife was here. Where is Miss Kristen? <laughs> is she around today? 
I need to acknowledge her. I really thank God for Pastor Nate and his dear wife and uh, just for the privilege of knowing them and serving with them. First at a different church and now here. And I don't, I don't take it for granted at all. Thank, thank God for them. Uh, if he's watching or listening, you should know that I truly appreciate everything he does, especially in encouraging our ministry of counseling and encouraging the mission work that we do. And even our private practice as well, just sending people to us from this church. Uh, hopefully you'll get to hear from someone during our break, someone who has been blessed, their marriage was blessed, and they told me yesterday that they would like to at least share something if given the opportunity. So, and I've not told him yet. Hopefully he hears now and knows that he will be sharing for a little bit during the break. But thank God for Pastor Nate who has encouraged our ministry and encouraged our practice. Hopefully more people will take advantage of this wonderful blessing the Lord has given us in the name of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling to help us with our, our personal issues and our marriages and our parenting. All right, thank you. We're here today, not for necessarily a marriage focus, but a focus on biblical parenting. And I promise you, I am excited and prayed up about this. And I'm trusting the Spirit to help us. Today, I believe, would be a blessing to somebody. So let's start by praying to the Lord about it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you once again, dear Lord that we are here, we are alive, we are well, um, not because we've done anything to deserve to be alive today, but because of your grace and mercy. So thank you, thank you. Thank you for each one of us here gathered who have left what they were doing this morning uh, to be here. I pray that this, this will be a blessing to them. Oh God, use me. Oh God, help me to communicate that which we've been preparing to communicate and help that your spirit will, would communicate it in special ways to individual families, individual couples, as they raise their children, as they plan to have children and raise them in the fear of the Lord. May these be relevant. May these be helpful. May these be something that brings glory to your name in their home, in their parenting. Oh, Father, we love you. Help us. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'd like to real quickly again to say we have, um, uh, I'll be speaking on, on, on the topics have varied a little bit, but it's the same thing, all right? It's, it's, the idea is how to shepherd the heart of a child that is maybe angry or hurting or upset. How do you shepherd the child of a heart, uh, the heart of a child rather, um, that is in, in your tutelage, under your care? in a way that brings honor to the Lord, in a way that's totally biblical, you know? Um, so the, the meat of what I'll be sharing, I wrote it in this pamphlet, okay? It will be out there on the tables for you. It's very simple to read. Maybe a few minutes, you'll be done. Uh, just think of someone who's, whose first language is not English writing, <laughs> now, and, and no one has really edited it for me. So just think about it, like a, just a rough thought. But it's really, it really goes to the heart of what we're talking about. And uh, so you can pick it up and you can make a donation to the ministry. It doesn't come to me. It goes to the ministry. And it will go toward Nigeria, the persecuted people of northern Nigeria, those who's, uh, who are in the camp we're going to be ministering to in, in January, who lost over 100 people among them because of the, the uh, Muslim extremists who came to kill them. So 
That's something for you uh, to pick up later. I'll leave it right here. And then, of course, our ministry brochures are there as well. Just to know more about what we do, you can pick it up as well. And God bless you. I'd like to present two books also to you that have to do with parenting, that have influenced my thinking. Now, I wrote that material before I found out about these books. <laughs> Someone else has written about it even better than me. Can you imagine that? So I'm like, praise the Lord. I'm going to show it to you all I have. I don't know them. I'm not, you know, raising money for them or anything. But I think you can be benefited. You can be blessed by this book called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. I'll read to you a couple of things that have been said about the book by people that you may recognize. This is a man called Reverend John MacArthur. Who knows John MacArthur? Okay, John MacArthur is a pastor and author, a radio Bible teacher. He says this. He says, with the plethora of material on parenting and the family, it is surprising and distressing to see how few books are genuinely biblical. Here is a refreshing exception. In Shepherding a Child's Heart, Ted Tripp offers solid, trustworthy, biblical help for parents. If you are looking for the right perspective, and practical help on the divine plan for parenting, you won't find a more excellent guide. As a Bible teacher who's known. So I encourage you, look for it online or whatever. It's been a blessing to me. And I want to actually tell you that a lot of my materials are from this book. So please, if you want more of what I'm talking about today, yes, it came from the Word of God, but this man really understands it a lot. And he's written it in his book, okay? find that. And then second, I also found this one. Parenting is hard, hard work. <laughs> Very interesting, right? By Dr. Scott Taransky and Joan Miller, a Christian book. Listen to what um, the, um, the, um, the, uh, the executive director for Awana Clubs International, Awana Clubs International, says about this book. Wow, this book is a masterpiece. We've chosen it to be our resource for our parents at Awana this year, a few years ago, okay? So these are books for you, just different resources you can look into to get yourself more prepared as a biblical parent. I feel like praying again, but I will not pray right now, but pray for me, all right? Let me speak to you about this. It's really important, and I believe that we all can benefit. Again, it's adapted in some ways from the book Shepherding a Child's Heart. It is actually, what I'm sharing with you today is actually the basis of this book that I mentioned. And it's actually, um, uh, would help you examine and work on your own heart as you work on your child's heart. You see, I like what Clinton said, though it was a slip of the tongue, but it was actually a good thing. It was like, we're not just, it's not like a, a, a parenting conference for children. It can be a parenting conference for you, the parents as well. All right? So open your heart, be ready, because God can use it to be a blessing to you also, okay? So it teaches you how communication and discipline, notice the two words, communication and the rod, the rod of discipline. Communication and the actions you take toward shaping your child's heart, how they go together especially for a parent who is wisely, intentionally trying to shepherd or guide his child's heart. Communication and the rod 
are going to be very important for you to accomplish the goal of wisely guiding your child's heart. Some of you may not have kids yet and you're trusting God for kids. You are in the right place because it will prepare your own heart and prepare you to know the importance of communication and also the importance of discipline. They're going together as you wisely guide the children that God will give you in the future. This is scripture, Psalm 78, that I believe really captures this whole idea. Let me read a few verses of that scripture to you. Psalm 78. It captures the heart of what we're saying here. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. As a father of three children, my wife and I have known ups and downs in our parenting. As people who immigrated to the United States 20-some years ago, we have known what it means to change cultures, to change environments. Remember the adage of Africans that says it takes a village to raise a child, to have been raised in an environment where your neighbors could discipline your child. They kept watch over your children when you were gone to the farms or to, to work on, the, on you know, to, to, to grow your crops. Everyone was involved in our own upbringing. To come to a country, I proposed to my wife on the, 20, on the 29th of, of June 2001. I'm sure some of you were not born at that time. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. But it's a long time ago. And we began to talk about childbearing. We said, someday we'll have children. Our first child will be, his name will be a combination of our, of our first names. My name is Alan. My wife's name is Winifred. And we said, our child's name will be what? Alfred. Okay, that was not too brilliant. But anyway, it was, it was not too creative, but it, was, it worked. And we said, oh, yeah. They said, but what about the number of children we'll have? And I said, my Lord, I prayed this prayer. If she would tell me the number I have in my heart, that would confirm that this is the woman for me. <laughs> and I asked her, and she said, three. I'm like, ah, praise the Lord. I didn't know the sign of the cross, but I'm like, ah. This is the woman for me. Those days when people would, 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 would claim to have seen visions that you're supposed to be their husband and all of that. It was very common in my community, by the way. You know, brothers telling sisters in Christ, oh, I saw a vision, I was preaching, you were singing, therefore we're supposed to be together. I saw myself in America. And we flew in the same airplane. Okay, whatever. But we, I had about three or four of those. But Winnie was the one that had come to my heart. I just loved her. It was like for no reason. I just loved this girl. What is this? I noticed I was first her counselor. She came to see me because of a man she was dating. I was like, okay. When I say that, by the way, people start thinking the wrong things. I just counseled her from the other man's life and brought her into my life. And it didn't happen that way. She went, continued the relationship, and much later, the, the, the man didn't feel like it was God's will for them, and she was free again. And then I found her again. But long story short, we talked about parenting in those early days. We prayed for our children before they came. We believed God what their names would be. 
And by the grace of God, she wanted three children, which is a confirmation again for me. And in all of that excitement, we left our homeland. We left our continent. We left our cultures. We left our environment. And we came into a strange land. In a place where all kinds of blessings are found, by the way. America, our dream country. But as far as raising children in this country, we had no idea how we would do it. So I want you, my friends, to picture for a second what possibly the struggles of our marriage in raising our children must have been all these years. By the end of the second session today, our first son who is back from, you know, he just came on his first break from Liberty University, he'll be speaking. I want him to speak for about five minutes. He tells me he just wants to give a review as a satisfied customer. <laughs> I say, okay, praise God. Try not to praise me or my, my wife, of course, your mom, but just be honest. Let other people see what God is doing and maybe some things that we did wrong, whatever it is you want to say. I didn't tell him what to say, by the way. So he says, I just want to say something. I said, go ahead, son, do it. I remember it as part of parenting, coming, coming along with him. I want him to come with me. I want him to see what I do. I want him to begin to, if God is calling him to do this kind of work, let him start practicing. That's part of parenting. So this scripture is really about this idea that we have to pass on what God has given us to our children. My friend, I prayed in the car as I was coming. I prayed my heart out. I, Lord, if they hear anything, I want them to hear that truly it's about the gospel. You parenting is you representing Jesus Christ in your home to guide your children to know Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world and to live out for him their whole life in a way that is radical. Your only mission, your main mission, is to represent God in that home to the children. But we don't do it perfectly. We make mistakes, all of us. And we have to keep learning. That's why we're here today. So, with that scripture, I want you to know, not only would you teach and model these truths for your children, but that even generations unborn will arise and teach them to their children so that they might put their hope in God. That's the thing. That's it. This main scripture, I want you to go back one slide. I want you to notice the scripture also. One slide backwards. Above all else, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. This is the thing. One slide backwards, please. Above all else, guard your heart. The goal is to guard your own heart as you're representing Jesus in your home and teaching your kids to guard their little hearts. Guard your heart. Guard their hearts. Help them guard their hearts. Guard your hearts. Why? For it is the wellspring of life. Or oh, you want them to live for God. You want them to, to sacrifice for Jesus. You want them to, to have one audience in their lives and live for him and him alone. This world is short. Time is short, my friends. It's about God. That's it. If you will not give your whole being to God, first and foremost, you will not be able to represent him like that in your home. I promise you that. Because kids will see and do what they see not what they hear. If you don't love him and sacrifice for him and, and pray to him and read the word and cry out and ask for forgiveness when you sin, if you will not be given to Jesus, you will not be able to represent him well to those kids. 
So your heart must first be given wholly to the Lord. Yourself, your being, your vision, your life, your career, your money, everything that you have and do must be for Jesus' glory. And they must see it and live it and breathe it every day. When you make mistakes, this does not represent Jesus well. Please forgive me, children. I am a, I am a bona fide Jesus radical follower. I love him. I will die for him. And I'm not saying this in, a, in a, an exaggerated way. I mean that. That's what I want. It doesn't mean that I always do that. But I want my kids to see that because that is really truly what my heart's desire is. Parents, brothers and sisters, please let your heart first be given to him. And then your kids will just follow. Is it a guarantee they will always follow? No. But it will not be on you. It will be on them. So, let's go back to the other slide. So, my friends, do not focus on their behavior only. Focus on their heart. Don't just focus on behavior. You miss their heart when you focus on behavior only. Strange behavior displays a strange heart. When you see them behaving in a certain way, it's only a fruit, a manifestation of something deeper. It's your heart. God is after the hearts of the children. Because after your own heart, my heart, the Lord says, the word of God says we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. When Jesus speaking again about that scripture, he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, quoting it in, in Matthew 22, he says, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let your kid be your neighbor in today's session in your mind. Yesterday, your, your neighbor was your spouse. Your neighbor, your brother in Christ and sister in Christ was your spouse when we spoke on marriage yesterday. Today, your neighbor is your kid. Your neighbor is the one God has given you the privilege to, to, to mentor, to guide, to parent. You, when you love God with your whole heart and you love your neighbor, who's your kid in this context, then you would seek after them loving God with their heart also. Ah, I feel like shouting hallelujah right here. Hallelujah! You know why I just shouted hallelujah? Because I just, in saying that, I just realized how weak we are. We cannot do it. We need God. We need the Spirit. We need Him overwhelming us by His power and causing us supernaturally to serve Him like that in our homes. That's why we pray a lot for our kids. My wife is a prayer warrior. She will come here this afternoon to say hello. She truly is a prayer warrior. A woman that I, I don't know if you all believe in things like this, but, you know, she wake up sometimes and I just see her laying hands on the doors of the children's rooms, the bedrooms. Like, I just follow suit. Sometimes I'm just so tired. I'm like, man, this woman, I feel ashamed. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be praying more than you. What is this? Yeah, I'm praying on them. Like, sometimes she actually, she goes in, she lays hands on them. She's praying. They're sleepy. And it's a normal practice in our home. She prays things. Sometimes I tell you this, this is not a lie. My wife will tell the kids things that they're dealing with. Say, Mom, how did you know that this guy is talking to me? How did you know that I have this person's number? Like, this is just a gift. I don't know how to describe it in any other way. Because she prays for them so much. I'm telling you, I feel ashamed sometimes. Praying for their heart. When you realize there is no way you can do these things by your power, I'm telling you, you would lean on the Lord. You would pray, you would seek his face, you would cry for them. And you would ask the Lord to take charge of their little hearts. And you would see God answer prayer before your very eyes. So, 
Don't focus on their behavior. Focus on their hearts because a strange behavior displays a strange heart. Our kids are always serving something, my friends, either God or a substitute for God. Serving God or an alternative for God. An idol of the heart. That is it. It's very important that you just catch that statement. The idols of the heart are many. In our own hearts, in the hearts of our little kids, they already have little idols right now. They're either going to serve God or their idols. Now, the idols, when they're very young, don't really threaten. They don't look very bad, by the way. It's when they grow. Then you start realizing this was a monster. This thing that I, I literally encouraged when they were little kids has now grown into something bigger, an idol. Not God, but something else in their hearts. Idol of the heart. If the problem is the overflow of the heart, then their need for grace and Jesus is established. If it's really a heart problem, we can do it. Only Jesus can do it. Therefore, that should be established in your heart today that it's a heart problem and therefore it's only Jesus, Jesus who can care for it. Only Jesus who can do the heart surgery. Some of you may remember I used to do some seminars with, with City uh, Wide before it became City Light. Uh, I talked about spiritual heart surgery. Similar theme here. It's a very central theme in the scriptures. That's what Pastor John McCaffrey is saying. You don't see many books that will focus on that a lot, whereas that is very biblical. That's actually the way to go. So, if we miss the heart, we miss the glory of God. Anything else would be you making it up or them trying to make it up by books they read, psychology books they read, um, 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 maybe motivational books or whatever kinds of books, ideas of the world. And when they succeed in that, it gives glory not to God, it gives glory to them. You see that? The goal is God's glory, always. And God's saying the problem is their heart. He's saying there are idols in their heart. You cannot have those idols and have me at the same time. It will not work. So you have to ask him to help your idols of the heart and help your children's idols of the heart so that the glory will go back to him when they are changed. It will not be you as a wonderful parent. It will be God, God's word, God's spirit that has helped them. And the glory of God continues from generation to generation to generation. Because they pass on to their children and the children's children what they got from you. <clears throat> they know it's Jesus. They know it's God's word. They know it's the spirit. They know it's all to the glory of God that I am who I am. I am what I am. That's biblical parenting. One of the most important callings God has given parents is to display their greatness goodness and glory of God for whom they are made. Let's stay on this slide. Look at that point number one. <clears throat> Parents exercise their authority as God's agents to direct their children on God's behalf for their good. You are going to, as a parent, exercise the authority God has given you. If you're going to parent biblically, you're going to take the, 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 the bull by the horns. You're going to exercise your authority as God's agents. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. To direct their child on God's behalf for the good of the child and for the glory of God. So, don't forget that. Very important premise right here. 
you are God's agent in your home. Can you just say that to yourself? I am God's agent in my home. I am God's agent. I represent Almighty God. And he's given me gifts in this earthen vessel, this broken vessel. Gifts that can be used to shape the lives of my children to the glory of his name and for their good. God, help me to represent you well. God, help me to react well when I'm angry. Help me to speak well on your behalf when I speak to them. Your whole life is about God. Some of you are really getting the point. It's literally, God is literally telling you, you're mine. Again, my scripture of yesterday, Galatians 2.20, you have been crucified with Christ. You don't have a life outside of Christ. I'm telling you, that's a normal Christian life. It's about Christ walking, living, breathing, speaking, seeing, touching the world through you, touching your children through you. So you are an agent of his. Parents should therefore continue to exercise that authority in every way possible. In their interactions with their kids, to the glory of God. As true servants and authorities that lay down their lives to empower our children to be self-controlled people living freely under the authority of God in this world. Do it, my friends. The Lord is with you. Point number two in my introduction. Uh, the central focus of parenting is the gospel. We said that again before. I'll say it again. It's the gospel. Don't forget that. Okay? You're an agent, number one. Number two, the central focus is the gospel in your home. Our children need to understand, listen to this, not only what, what they need. Oh, let's, let's say this way. If your kid is going through a crisis or has done something that you think is not good and needs to be called out or, you know, um, you know they need to be corrected for it, they don't only need to know that what they did is not good. Not just what they did, which is wrong, but also the internal. Catch, this is very, it can be very elusive. The internal why as to why they did it. You start teaching them about the power of the flesh, the fallenness of sinful men. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's truly, truly, desperately wicked. That's why people sin. That's why people move away from Almighty God to worshiping of idols, to suit their own wants and desires in this world. And their idols, the chief of their idols is the self, me. The center of my world, I do what I want, not what God wants. The why is important to instill in them so that they would begin to wrestle with that and come to know the power and the blessedness of Jesus. Because he's the, the savior of the world. He's the way out of sin. He's the one who destroyed the power of darkness and the cross of Calvary. Jesus is the only answer your kids need to know. The internal wrestling that comes, as, which is the actual, uh, um, where the root of where the problem is coming from, their heart. And know that they cannot change their hearts. Only one who died for them, one who conquered sin and death, the one whom God sent, their only savior, Jesus, then they turn to him for their heart's problems. And then they realize his greatness and power and they worship him. 
And they thank him and they honor him for that. So the what, when they sin, is important, but not just the what. What you did wrong, but why you did it. You're already beginning to do the work of the heart when you start doing that. Point number three. So number one, you are the agent. It's the foundational blocks. I'm going to build on these. You're the agent in your home. The gospel is the focus, the central focus. And third, we can help our children see how God works. Not just would you highlight for them the fact that they've done something wrong and why they did something wrong, their hearts. But, catch this, how God works in changing the heart. Oh, if you give your kids that, you've given them a lot because they can run with that. They know if they believe it, that, oh, it's truly, it's because I'm a sinner that I did what I did. It's because I'm still a sinner, though I've been saved by grace, if they've trusted Christ. And I'm still going to be wrestling with these heart issues, idols of the heart. But there is one who can help me, God. And how he works is by his Holy Spirit, his word, and his people. Three things. God works in changing our hearts by his spirit, his word, and his people. So if you teach them that and you show them how to lean on the Spirit through prayer and seeking the Lord and fasting, sometimes, I don't know if you guys do that sometimes, but sometimes that's what we do in our home. We fast all of our life. We are going on a fast, and we've seen God answer over and over and over. A story about how God used fasting to work in our lives as a family with the kids was in 2012. My mom used to be my greatest supporter. When I was working on my doctorate, she would say, you're going to be the first doctor in our home. <laughs> like, she used to celebrate. I mean, I thank God for that. But it used to really fuck me up. Like, man, I'm going to be the first doctor in the village or whatever. I think there was another doctor before, one doctor, Asanji. That's the only other doctor I knew. Mom used to say, you'll be the first doctor. Keep going. So working hard. And then she would call me to pray with people. She was living in Maryland. Um, in D.C., sorry. And so she would call me and say, I made a colleague who wants you to pray for them. Like, Mom, I have to study. You know, I have to be the first doctor or second doctor or whatever. And she's like, no, just take a break. Just pray for them. They need to know the Lord, you know, and all of that. So 2012, studying really hard, enjoying. Well, not enjoy, I wasn't enjoying my studies, I'll promise you that. I felt I was suffering a lot. Who put me into this suffering thing? This PhD thing is even worse. It's actually prideful to become a PhD. Whatever. But I was like wrestling inside. Like, why am I suffering like this? Friends are having fun doing other things. I'm in library after library, day and night. So I was at this library called Lynchburg, uh, library, Lynchburg College Library. Now it's Lynchburg University. And sitting there, my mom calls me a day before. And mom says, hey, Alan, we have a situation. Um, a certain lady called Ashley, who cares for your dad. My dad had had two strokes at the time, so dad had help at home. Ashley had just trusted Christ for salvation. Pray for Ashley. And I said, oh, okay, thank God, I will pray for Ashley, for Ashley I think. And then they said, but I have another prayer topic. My, another young man in New York, he's a nurse, and his wife is a medical doctor from a certain family in Cameroon. He's been diagnosed with cancer. Please, could you pray for him? I said, okay, I'll pray for him. Mom will pray. The very next day, mom calls me again and says, Alan, did you pray for them? I'm like, mom, I prayed. Why are, you, why are you interrupting my studies like that? I have to be the second doctor in the village. So, um, the mom says, no. I just needed to check and also to tell you some things about the family. Mom told me about my 
family. He told me about the history of the family and everything. My, my parents, parents, the things they did. I'm like, Mom, why are you talking like this? It's almost midnight. And she kept talking. And then she said, write those. I said, Mom, write it down so I can give my family members to read. And Mom said, no, you write. You're the scholar. You write it down. And I wrote it down until I said, Mom, the first page is over. She said, flip it over. I flipped it. I wrote it again. I said, Mom, it's half. Second page, Mom said, Alan, uh, that's it for now. And that was the last I heard from my mom. What was my point? My mom died the next day, hemorrhagic stroke. So I was called, and I was devastated. There was, I lost hope. I'm like, what am I going to get this PhD for? My mom is not there to celebrate me anymore. What is this? I lost hope. I got depressed and everything. I know I'm coming to talk about prayer. I need to give you a little bit of background. But this is my point. My mom was so important to me. Remember, parent, child. We talked about the parenting conference, the parenting topic here. How we related. Um, she was in her 60s. You know, when she passed, her mid-60s. That relationship with me and my mom and how she taught me, how she loved me, how she cared about what I cared about, how she was proud of me, those things were really deeply rooted in me and they motivated me to want to do more in this life. My mom had been my persecutor before. You guys know this story. She kicked me out of the house twice because I got saved at an early age. She didn't understand. She thought I joined a cult. And the Lord finally saved her. She was now the one calling me to pray for people and lead them to Christ. We'd come full circle. My mother and I were tight. She'd influenced me for God in some ways I could not even believe. The Lord was using my mom. The Lord was using her to also encourage me in my studies, in my life's goals. And yet my mother had died suddenly. And I lost it. When I lost it, the PhD program at Liberty University began to say, okay, Arlen, We'll send you some kind of an exit counselor to come and you know, talk to you, encourage you. Say, oh, well, six out of every ten PhD students fill out, so you're no exception. Don't worry. We know you had this situation in your life. Because I, I could not study. I was just really struggling. And, and so they sent this man called Philip. He came, talked with me. And after that, I went home, told my wife, so we're preparing to leave the program. But one more guy called Ryan, Ryan Carbonell, he was a PhD student also, asked to meet with me in one McDonald's. We went to this McDonald's. And he just asked a simple question. Have you prayed? I'm like, God had helped me to be prayerful. Okay, so I knew prayers. I knew things. But he added one more thing. He said, have you fasted on top of it? Yes, your mom is gone. That's a parent who's gone. You're left with your kids. You have a big thing in front of you. Have you prayed, have you fasted? And I said, Ryan, thank you. That's what I needed to hear. I went home. I didn't go uh, into this fast alone. I told my wife, and we said, let's bring the children in. Some would say, oh, don't bring the kids in. They don't understand. That's part of parenting. It's part of what I'm talking to you today about. We said, come kids, you're going to skip lunch. You're going to skip dinner. We're going to pray to God for this reason. Dad is really down. Dad is about to fail out of school right now. We need God's intervention. Would you do it, kids? And they say, oh, yeah. They were very young. <laughs> they say, yeah. And I guess they didn't know what they were, they, they were bargaining for, they were coming into. Because they got very hungry, began to, like, really, really fuss about it. I'm like, you guys have fasting and fasting like that. It doesn't work like that, you know? Um, so we prayed that day, that evening, because I went for breakfast with Ryan, came back, skipped lunch. We prayed that afternoon, went into the evening. They fell asleep took them to bed. We said, Lord, we need a miracle. We want the kids to see you do this miracle because they're involved in this. The, the program said, I'm failing out. There's no hope. It's going down, all right? We need you to act. Lord, would you act? And the Lord acted. Let me tell you how he did it. 
By the second day of the fast, by noon that day, we were praying and suddenly a scripture dropped in my heart. It's almost like it was audible. Isaiah 43, 18, behold, and I began to say it out loud. My wife just burst out crying. We just knew God was speaking to us. Behold, I do a new thing. Can't you see it spring forth? Can you not see it arise? And we believed God, and I called the, the, the program that day, the, the vice uh, man, um, director, assistant director of the program, Dr. Lisa Sawson. I picked up the phone. I called them. They opened up everything. I was able to take an exam, and the Lord just opened the door. To this day, we rejoice about what God did, because I just went straight and finished first, like, the first to, to, to defend my dissertation in the program, in my batch, and everyone knew it was a miracle from heaven. Catch it. Including our kids. Brothers and sisters, I'm establishing this, and as I keep going, I want you to catch this and know it from your heart, in your heart of heart, that we can help our children see how God works and it would be an indelible mark on their hearts forever. One of the ways you do that is that you fast and you pray and you involve them in not just Bible study, you, you immerse them in the things of the Spirit. I don't be afraid. God is good. God is wise. He's powerful. God can help your children if you bring them, if you bring their hearts, if you bring circumstances and situations before the Lord in prayer and fasting, go all in with God and your children and you will see what God will do. So, God works in ways that are unique. Catch this. He works from inside out. Okay? And we, we therefore should help them understand why they sin and how to recognize internal changes that happen by the Spirit. See, the movements of the Spirit are very unique for different individuals. When you press into God in His Word and prayer and fasting, and you give your whole self to the Lord, including your staff, you say, God, I mean business. God will start by changing you. Oh my God, he will change you, my friends. Believe it or not. Some of you think you are here just to parent that child. God is after you. He's saying, don't worry, I got that child. I'm after you. Your heart is still far from me. Your ways are for your own glory. You have your own idols. You actually are your own God. And I need to change your heart. Child, give me your heart. And when the Lord says that, he means business. So I want you as we proceed to take a little break right now, I want you to think, how is God calling me to give him my heart? Wholly, completely, even as I represent him as his agent in the home. As I represent him as his agent in the church. How is God calling me, first and foremost, that I give him my heart completely? Child, give me your heart. And when we do that, I want to get to the next thing, which is getting to the heart of behaviors. The heart of behaviors in children. But before we do that, can you bow your heads with me? I want you to process this with me. How's God speaking to you right now? Talk to him back. Yield to him. Let the barriers, the walls fall. Say, Lord, I don't want to be defensive. I want to be open. Lord, use me. Lord, help me. You're the most precious thing ever. To give oneself to you is the best privilege we can take advantage of. Help me to give you my heart. And maybe there is secret sin, right? Things in your own life and in your own behavior. And God is saying, huh, 
I'll change your heart and your behavior will change. Tell him that behavior. Tell him that, that tendency, that sinful thing, if there is anything like that. In your heart, in your behavior, in your manner of maybe communicating like we talked about yesterday with your spouse, with your children. Just ask the Lord, please, change my heart. Change me. Help me. Take a minute, please, and just do that again. Really examine your heart. We're going to go deep a little bit more. It will be more about you, how you change your children's heart, by change their behavior through their heart. But remember, you also may be helped by this. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I know that my own heart is not perfect. My behaviors have not always represented you, Lord. My inclinations, my desires, my motives, the reasons why I do certain things don't always reflect this pure and glorious gospel that I seek to proclaim. So forgive me and help me. Help me help my friends as they listen, that they themselves will also be able to yield more of their own hearts to you as they seek to learn how to change the behaviors of their kids by changing their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen? I take a deep breath. Stand up for a little bit. I want us to really enter into something. But before we do that, I want you to relax a little bit, truly. Can you stand to your feet if you don't mind, please? Just stand with me. <clears throat> I don't want you to feel guilty or feel ashamed or feel worried. God is here with us. God knows everything. God has a plan for your family. He says, be anxious for nothing. In everything, through prayers and supplication, with thanksgiving, make known your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every human understanding, will keep your minds at rest in Christ Jesus. If you have kids that are wayward right now, you have kids that are very young. You just don't know what to do, how to start. You feel like this is just a very tall task. How do I start? These are deep spiritual things. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Be at peace. Relax. Know that he's at work. If you don't have kids yet, and you're wondering, you're wondering okay, will this ever, maybe it's, it's a good opportunity to say no to kids at this point. <laughs> you know, just trust in the Lord. Amen? You can be seated. From. Thank you. Getting to the heart of the behavior. I apologize, it's, it's very little, small, small print. Again, remember the book, you can get some, the book and some of the material in the book. Um, when you see bad behavior as a parent, the temptation would be to try to correct the behavior in a straightforward manner. What do I mean by that? You may find yourself using unbiblical methods that you learned either by the way you were, your parents parented you or you learned through you know, popular psychology 
or maybe some talk show host, or maybe other parents, or just maybe out of your own anger and impulsiveness, you just do it because you're trying to address the behavior so quickly. When you do that, we say you're bruising the fruit. All right? There is always a root or the heart of the matter that must be addressed. That's what this is about. You're not being too rash to discipline and correct behavior, but to do what is biblical. So getting to the heart of the behavior, there are four points I want to make under this topic. Number one, the behavior a person exhibits is an expression of the overflow of his or her heart. All right? So when you see the noise coming from somewhere, an overflow of their heart. The basic issue is always what is going on in the heart of your child. Not necessarily what you're seeing with your eyes. Point number two. A change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart is not commendable. Don't just go for the change in behavior. It may be convenient, but not very biblical because you're bruising the fruit. The real source is not being touched yet. Watch out for going to a quick change in behavior. Point number three, we must require proper behavior and help our children ask the questions that will expose the attitude of heart that has resulted in wrongdoing. Attitude of heart. In our course, we teach something called the predominant attitude of heart. We teach a three-level course in our online biblical soul care program we do. But we, I want you to just get a little snippet of it. This is it. There are hard attitudes that people have when you see a certain behavior is only a symptom or a reflection of one of four hard attitudes. These are all biblical things, by the way. The first hard attitude you see is what we talked about yesterday. It's very common in marriage and in parenting. It's a heart of anger. A heart that has stuffed in some things that were done against it and has not yet released or forgiven those things, consciously or unconsciously. Those things are stuffed in and they are producing fruit. Heart of anger is one. Cain had a heart of anger in Scripture. God warned him, told him, Many people in Scripture had a heart of anger. And God warned them over and over, and yet they let their anger burn and do destructive things in their marriages and other areas of their lives. Second kind of heart you see is, catch this, a heart of fear. Some people have a heart of fear. Whereas the heart of anger to go clinical, to go with the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Disorders, the book we call the DSM, maybe some of you know DSM-5, the heart of anger is what psychologists or psychotherapists, I'm a psychotherapist, from a clinical secular perspective would say is the cause of things like anger issues that lead to, that lead to certain kinds of bad behaviors you see. A heart of anger is what the Bible says would also lead us to doing things that are contrary to God's plan, but to satisfy the burning anger that we're experiencing. Heart of anger, clinically, there's a way to look at it 
But now a heart of fear is what psychologists would also consider the place where anxiety comes from. Fearful. Phobias. All right? There's so many phobias. Hundreds of phobias, right? Out there. And it's because of a heart that is afraid. From a biblical perspective, we talk about it so that you can understand that it is also a place where anxiety, fear, and other related emotions come from. But it's just a heart of fear that you have. There's another one. There are four of them. The one we call the heart of foolishness. This is the kind of heart based on Psalm 14, that a fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's the kind of heart that's behaving as though you are the God. You are the idol of your life. A heart of foolishness behaves in a way that is not controlled, self-controlled or disciplined. When people do like addicting, addictive behaviors a lot, even when it's destroying their families, just to satisfy themselves, their own lusts, that's a heart of foolishness that is propelling that kind of an outward manifestation. So we go to the heart of foolishness and we deal with it in our counseling. All right? So there's a heart of, uh, a heart of anger, a heart of fear, a heart of foolishness, and a heart, because this is a heart of despair. What's a heart of despair? And what does it lead to? A heart of despair is what psychologists would generally talk about as a heart or a place from where depression comes. Depression. Worry about tomorrow. Not just like anxiety only, but like really, really dark thinking, like really, really dark thoughts. I think there is no hope. Hopelessness. Heart of despair. These are the four predominant hearts that we see even in our children. When you see a behavior, think a heart. It could be a heart of despair, a heart of anger. A heart of fear or a heart of foolishness that they are exhibiting. So what's my point? When you see a certain kind of behavior, do not be too quick to bruise the fruit because there is a root to it. The root is the predominant heart from where it's coming. So a change in behavior that does not stem from a change in heart or in the predominant heart is not commendable. We must therefore require proper behavior. Point number three, proper behavior and help our children ask the questions that will expose the attitude of heart that has resulted in wrongdoing or the predominant attitude of heart. These are very important lessons to learn for your own heart, by the way, and for the hearts of your children. I was asking questions for yourself. Why did I talk to my spouse like this? Why did I burst out in anger against my boss like this? Why did I go to the internet and watch these kinds of things? Why did I drink so much? What is it I was trying to satisfy despite the hurt it's causing to my God and to others? Am I behaving as though there is no God? I am the God of my own life. That's foolishness. You have to deal with foolishness by going to the scriptures that relate to a heart of foolishness. This is something that the majority of biblical counselors would agree with. The hearts that problems come from. Okay? So I'm not making this up. 
So are things that you have to really ask yourself these questions in ways that will train your own heart and train yourself to be prepared enough to help your children also ask those questions. So it starts with you. It starts with your heart. So, we must require, I repeat it, a proper behavior from our children. But we also must help our children to ask questions that will expose the attitude of heart that has resulted in wrong behavior. Let me give you an example of this. Think of children fighting over a toy at home. Some of you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. They really want that toy, all of them at the same time. You have just one of the toys. Sometimes you have two of that same kind of toy, but guess what they want? They want the other one that the other person is playing with right now. And by the way, they demand it and they put their little fingers down. Like, no, I, I want it now. When you see that, think hard. <laughs> think hard. So, children fighting over a toy are both exhibiting a hardness of heart toward each other and a selfishness that you need to address. Like I said before, I've written a pamphlet that demonstrates a practical and personal manner how I tried to also shepherd the heart of my daughter who was exhibiting something like that. I'll give you an excerpt of how I dealt with her from the pamphlet, all right? So, remember, I'm not selling it, right? So, I'm not trying to sell it. I'm just trying to truly bring some kind of help. But, um... My daughter, Aline, likes to bake pastries. She gave me permission to share this and write it down. <laughs> well, maybe she likes to sing more, but that's beside the point. She comes rushing home some afternoons just to go to the kitchen, find a YouTube instruction video on her iPod, and start mixing the dough for something. For something. We never know what she's trying to do. I didn't mind her becoming the next Rachel Ray, but I began noticing a worrying pattern. After cooking it, she would often eat first and call her brothers to have what's left later. After a few warnings to change the behavior to no success, she was banned from cooking for a season. She waited for a couple of weeks and nothing changed, and so she decided to talk to us about it. After an elaborate defense and justification of her actions, she requested that we lift the ban Yesterday, this when I wrote it. This has been maybe two years now I wrote this. But she requested, she was demanding that we, we lift the ban. You know? We were not convinced that she had gotten the lesson. She got frustrated and loudly demanded that we listen and heed to her request and angrily, angrily retreated upstairs to her bedroom. She returned later, after we didn't follow. <laughs> we didn't follow upstairs, we just waited. She returned later, and we had a more amicable conversation. And we didn't just say, stop raising your voice at us and start lovingly sharing with your brothers. Though imperfectly, we try to shepherd her heart. Thinking and desires is what I mean by her heart. Her way of thinking about it and her heart, heart's desires, motives. We try to shepherd her a little heart through the process described in this booklet. And there are five steps, okay? So... 
Again, I wrote this before finding the book. <laughs> I am like, wow. If I had found the book before, I wouldn't have written this because this book has everything. But this is my point. Please notice the importance of what I'm saying to you about the very beginning of shaping the heart of a child. You don't just go to the, the behavior. You go to the heart, okay? When you go to the heart, you get to the root of the issue better. All right. And point number four here, last point on this, this topic again is getting to the heart of the behavior. Point number four, unmasking your child's sin or improper behavior really helps okay it really helps so we're not saying you cover this sin when you see the behavior you just sit there and wait for their heart no you have to unmask it but you have to do it the right way in a helpful way it helps in what ways it helps him or her understand that his or her straying heart is truly because of their sinful nature and once they can understand that at a tender age it will now lead them to the cross and to his or her need for forgiveness and the Savior at a very tender age. You can start it now if your kids are young. Let's move to the next slide here. Your child's development. Shaping influences of your child's development. I want to go a little bit, maybe a little bit psychological with you, if you don't mind, as to what goes on in your child's developmental stages. I won't go elaborate, trust me. I will try not to go this school academic thing, way, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. Number one thing I want to say is that shaping influences are the events and the circumstances in a child's developmental years that can determine who they become. Shaping influences. What are these? These are catalysts for making him or her the person he is or the person she is. In terms of, when I say influences, I'm thinking the structure of the family that influences them at a tender age. Who's playing what role? Mom playing what role? Dad playing what role? Family values that are highlighted in the family every day before their eyes. Family, family's responses in times of failure and, and troubled times. Remember, they are watching and seeing everything you're doing more than what you're saying. Family history, the things they hear about, about their grandparents like my kids, the things they heard about, my mom, the influence of my mom on my life. Those are influences that can shape the child's personality into becoming an adult. That's either good for the community, good for the, themselves, the family, and good for, good for God's purposes, or not. So, what are the shaping influences? They are the catalysts, the things that make a child become who they are in personality. I've also taught a course at Liberty called, um, I think, um, Theories in Counseling and Psychotherapy, but also a psychology of personality. There's a lot to it. Okay, you can read about it. But a lot of the research is based on humanistic, secular thoughts and presuppositions that are not biblical. Psychology is very good at observing to describe, but not observing 
to prescribe the right solutions. Beware of secular psychological theories on how to shape your child's personality. The methods to discipline them. We'll look at some unbiblical methods before we end this session, and then we'll, and the next, as we come back, the next session, we'll look at the biblical methods. But before we do that, I want you to understand the things that are shaping your child's personality right now. And so you can be very, very aware and ready. Second thing I'd like for you to remember on this topic of your child's developmental years are being shaped by influences and circumstances is this. The person he becomes is a product of his life's experiences also. Not just the things you do at home, but his own personal experiences with other people outside of the home. And how he interacts with those experiences. So beware of that. Not only are you helpless after you've done your part in the sense that only the Holy Spirit has to do his work in their heart, but you're also helpless to some extent in that the experiences they'll have at school and other people outside may be, you may have little or no influence on that, except they tell you, and then you can try to shape it and guide them again. Hence the need to pray even more, to depend on the Lord, and to take action, right action. Sometimes you're able to afford to send them to a Christian school. Do that. I think that's a good idea. I believe, I believe this, my friends, that even if you send them to those schools. If God does not help them, they will still come out maybe as bad as other kids who don't know God at all, who are not from Christian homes. My story. From a family of seven, four boys, three girls, sixth of seven children, first to be saved at age 13. Everyone else except me and one of my sisters went to a Christian school. Boarding schools, parents struggled to pay the tuition, everything. Baptist schools, the word was taught. Missionaries from the United States would teach in these institutions. But whenever they came back from school, the partying, the sinful engagements, the things they did were appalling. And to the glory of God, their little brother, not by any cause of my own, gets sent to a public school, a terrible school, where kids will take kids, teenagers, 13, 12, 13, 14, they'll have sex during break. Oh, yes. With their friends, in, it was just, and they would talk about it in class and make fun of the teachers. I was like in the ghettos. And the Lord helped me. My brothers were in boarding schools, listening to Christian teachers, being, you know, kind of in bubbles where only the gospel and everything was being given to them. They were not, their hearts were not touched. And me in this circumstance, I noticed a guy called Ayuk. While those kids were doing all these terrible things and it was really bad. They would drink and drunk. It was terrible. I would sit and I would watch a guy called Ayuk. 
Ayuk was a known child. I, I wonder why his parents sent him there because his parents had the means to send him anywhere. His father had studied here in the United States, was a doctor, he was a um, veterinarian, had his own practice, was running for president, was in politics also. But sent Ayuk to that school. Maybe he sent him just for me. The, the Lord just sent that guy for me. I'm telling you. Ayuk was there. He would not engage in all these bad things. He was the best in class, best in physical education, called PE. He was strong. No one could mess with him. I was going through bullying. He could not be bullied because he would bully the bullies if they wanted. He was physically strong from a rich family. He was everything you wanted. Science, he was good. Art, subjects, he was good. But he was not engaging in all those bad things. I went one day. I praise God for that inclination, that sense to go close and ask him a question one day. I said, are you you don't do all these bad things. You're so good. What's up with you? Who are you? What is this? And he says, because I'm a Christian. And I said, what? You're a Christian? I'm a Christian too. Yay. So I went. I was a religious Christian. I didn't know Jesus. Family was religious, but we did all kinds of crazy things. Went to witch doctors. My parents were involved in witch. It was terrible. I says, you're a Christian, but are you born again? I said, what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't know what he meant. Because we'd heard this, the word, the phrase born again, and attributed it to a cult. Like, okay, small cult of people, crazy people. And he said, are you born again? And he went to John 3, 16. He shared with me. And God touched my heart. I got saved. That was in 1992. When I got saved, my eyes opened. I began to teach me the word. Another young man called Simon got saved also through Ayuk's ministry. And because our mother did not want me to go close to him, my mom threatened to kill him with a machete. If you come close to my kid, he's joined a cult, he's praying a lot these days, he's reading the Bible, he's going to go crazy. Leave him alone. And if you, bring, if you come to my home, I will kill you. And Ayuk said, I'll start teaching you in school. 14-year-old child can teach me the word of God. Shepherding me in a secular school. My friend, listen. Long story short, the kid that you're trying to parent, only God can save them. Only God can help them. Only God is able to guide their heart and change their heart. So pray for them more than you send them to places hoping those places will change them. Because God is able. The person he becomes is a product of his life's experiences. I met Ayuk in school. My parents had no influence on that. And my life was changed as a result of my interacting with my experience with Ayuk. He taught me for two years and he left town. And the Lord, what he did in my heart, I have not recovered from it. It's 30 years plus now. I praise God for the influence another child had on my own, my child, my, my childlike heart. I pray for your children that God will do the same for them. So, as I wrap up this particular topic in your child's development, developmental years are due to the shaping influences in the home and outside, I want you to hear a certain theory that's related to this, a psychological theory. It's called schema theory. Many some of you have heard about this theory before. And schema theory on one side, kind of a superficial version of this, talks about how people develop personality 
due to the experiences they've had growing up in their homes and outside of their homes. It postulates that if you have been exposed to like a natural disaster or to a war zone as a child when the brain is still developing, it's called myelination of the brain. Your brain is wrapping itself around the experiences and influences of his life as the brain is still tender and growing during the developmental years of the child. When a child's experience was, let's say, in a war zone, and the parents had to duck all the time or run into, like we see in Israel today, run into bomb shelters all the time. Even when that child becomes an adult and not been properly healed of that traumatic experience, when they hear the sounds that they used to hear that prompted the running into the bomb shelters, even if they don't run to a bomb shelter, they would cringe. The brain just does that. It keeps that. So schema theory holds that if a child is exposed to certain kinds of circumstances in the world, their experience about the world or of the world, in other words, their picture, their vision, their, their, the, 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 what they have in mind as to how the world works would be governed by those experiences. So watch out for the experiences that you expose your child to. It could be movies, horror movies, violent movies, those kinds of things. If they do it enough, it could affect them for a long time to come, even if you don't know about that. I'm speaking as one who has been a therapist as well to students, fr freshmen in college, who tell me things that they've never told their parents that have affected their lives all these years. And so schema theory holds that the world, the world's influences, sorry, the world's influences, excuse me, can affect how a child views the world. Second, the influence of others in their lives can affect how they view other people. Others may mean anyone that's not themselves. Parent, brother and sister. You heard of situations, and I hate to say it, but it's true, it happens. Incests in families. How a boy child sees his sister like another girl. See a lot of those in counseling, by the way. The view of others is influenced by how, when the brain was malinating and growing around experiences and circumstances, encoded information about others. Therefore, the way you're treating their sibling matters to the development. They're seeing how others are being treated. They hear how you talk, your tone of voice, how you parent a child in the presence of another child can influence the child's perspective as to how parenting should be done. Some people in, in counseling, and I just cannot say these stories too much because they are people's real, real life things, okay? So if I ever say it, it will be something like maybe happened 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> but I'll just say this to you. That was a, a situation a long time back where someone actually told me that, you know, and I have to change things a little bit because I cannot bring it anywhere close, even remotely close to, like, the, but I wanted to get the sense. It was he and his sister as to how their mother was behaving toward them, okay? So, until now, he's paying money for therapy, trying to correct 
the way his mother was treating his sister. Now, you know it's serious because he is making sacrifices to try to fix that. It's there. I don't know about you or dealing with some personal things. I want you to know that this Jesus we are talking about is able to heal. I know it's a sharp left, but I want you to hear it as I say these things. Don't be worried about the experiences you've had that have influenced you or marred your way of, this, of parenting your own child because you have Jesus. It's a difference. You have his word and you have his people. You have the spirit of Christ. You have the word of Christ. And you have the people of Christ. God can change you. He can help you. So keep coming to church. Keep serving the Lord wherever you are. Keep doing what the, what the Lord is leading you to do. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. I share these things just to show you from a psychological research perspective the influence you can have on your child even by simply parenting as they watch. So, schema holds that view of the world influenced by the things that happen as they're growing up View of other, influenced by how others have been treated, how others treated them. They learn that that's how others are. That's how people are. You can never be trusted because this uncle did this to me. This uncle touched me this way. I cried out to my mother. I'm telling you like a, a summary of many stories that I hear. I cried out to my mother. No one believed me. The grandpa was doing this to me. Therefore, all men are like that. You see that? They may not say it or even articulate it like that, but something inside believes that I can't trust men, especially older men in the home. That's not true. That's just an experience, a very isolated experience that can influence a child, especially if it's ongoing and you don't watch out for it. Watch out, parents, who you bring into your home and watch out. And I hate to say it this way because I know it's, I'm, already, I'm, I'm reinforcing something that you already do here in the United States. We are very individualistic in our way of doing things here in the U.S. We don't bring other, like older parents a lot. We, those are things that we don't do a lot here in the U.S. It's different in other parts of the world, especially um, eastern parts of the world, Okay. We, we, it's, a, it's, it's a big family. We all grow together. People, you know, and bad things still happen in those circumstances, but maybe it's not talked about as much as it's talked about here. It's really in the counseling office. This is my point. Watch out for who, the others that you bring into your child's life because it does affect. If they are good influence, it will affect them well. If they are bad influence, they don't have to do like the worst things to them. They might just be saying bad things to them. I remember growing up, one of my Cousins actually um, was brought in to the house. And he, I've never said this before to, in, anyway, and this guy, I wouldn't call his name, you know, every time, you know, in the, in those, we're living in this little hut, it was like a hut, <laughs> a hut, you call that. And this guy had same sex tendencies. I never knew what it meant. I was actually confused about what he was trying to do to me every time. Thank God he never really did the real thing, if you know what I mean. But every time when the lights were turned off, because we shared the bed, he would be wanting me to take my hand and putting it in places that my hand had no business being in. He actually was asking my mouth to go somewhere it was not supposed to be. Listen to me. I know it may be too much for you. Catch this. You're kids are being influenced by others also. There's a lot of research on that, by the way. 
And so guard that brain, protect them. And then lastly, on schema, you see that it's also the self. World, other, self. What they are influenced by in their experiences and circumstances can actually cause you as a, um, as a person to totally, totally start thinking in a skewed way about world, others, and self. What you say to the child, for example, the words you use to the child can influence how they view themselves. They also say that to themselves. Some people go to the mirror and they say really negative things to themselves. They literally believe that about themselves. So when you are working with your kids, think schema theory, but not just the psychological side of it. I want you to think like the biblical way. How am I exposing my kids, the kinds of schools I send my kids to, if I can afford to send them to a good place, praise God. But I have to ultimately depend on Jesus to help them. And when you do that by the grace of God, you truly are helping your kids. Your child's development, and we'll take a break shortly. Your child's development would be best done if you give your child a Godward orientation. Okay? A Godward orientation. Always try. Bring Jesus more and more into the home. On that this point number one, whatever the, the shaping influences of your child's life, it is the child's Godward orientation that determines his response to those shaping influences. I'm giving you a key, the biblical key, to bringing everything together for them. World, other, and self influences. The best way to help them understand it from a right perspective is you always orienting them toward God. God is powerful. God is able to help you. When no one is there, when mommy is not there, God is there. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. God, God orientation all the time so that when they are faced with circumstances in the world and they have no way of interpreting what, what happened to them like that, God. When they're faced with others trying to do things to them or say bad things to them in your absence, you have no idea, babysitters, do things to people. I don't want to make you scared or anything. I hope that's not a message I'm passing on to you. I want you to know God is always there. You show the kids that God is there with you. And then the view of themselves is God who will help change it through his word. He will change their mind through the washing of water by the word. Godward orientation is a good way to help, help the child Determine his response to the shaping influences. And second and last point on this one, the child is either worshiping and serving and growing in the understanding of the implications of who God is. Catch these three words. The child is either worshiping, serving, and growing in the understanding of the implications of who God is or who he is seeking to make sense of life. Without a relationship to God and worshiping of idols. Let me take this over. The child is either worshiping, number one, and serving and growing in the understanding of the implications of who God is. How does that imply in these different circumstances? In the world, others, myself, the view of myself, or he is seeking to make sense of life without a relationship to God and worshiping him. 
You choose which way you want to go with your child. God, a lot of God, or leaving them alone to figure it out by themselves. And once they do that, you know that's a bad place to be. Notice that you are in charge. You're in charge. There are three main ways that I want to talk about real quickly here. Let me ask my host, Brad Clinton. Let's take about 10 more minutes. Is that going to take a break? Good. I hope this is a blessing to you. Amen? Is it a blessing to somebody? Yes, I hope it's just <laughs> Yeah, I want to make sure because sometimes, you know, I'm used to people giving me feedback when I preach. But this is not, it's, I know it's kind of hard, it's difficult things to hear about children. And, but, so I understand. So no worries about that. But I want you to understand these three things, okay? About when I say you're in charge, what do I mean? Number one, I want you to take certain responsibilities. Number one, teach your children that God loves them so much that he gave them parents to be kind authorities to teach and lead them. You have to teach them that. That you're actually God's agent. Remember how it started, right? You're God's agent. You have to teach your kids, hey, listen, I'm not just here, but I am actually representing Almighty God. And that God loves you so much that he gave me to you to be kind authorities over your life. Okay? And to teach you and to lead you in his ways. When you teach your children that and they believe that, they start receiving discipline better. Okay? Second thing I want you to know as one who's in charge is that it is God who is not being obeyed. You teach your kids this. That is God who is not being obeyed and honored when we as parents are disobeyed and dishonored. You're actually God's agent. You have to teach them that. I represent God in his family. Now, remember this. If your life is not lined up with God, guess what? It creates controversy. Okay, <laughs> you, I see what you watch on TV. I see how you talk to mommy and talk to daddy. I see your friends. Oh, you're God. What do you mean by your God's uh, agent? See how it helps when you start when they're very tender? <laughs> when they're already too old, it gets a little bit trickier because they're like, okay. They question a lot. But when you start early, it's a good thing. We must insist that our children obey God because... Obeying God is good and right, and we are God's agents to execute that in the home. And the third point I want you to take note of, my friends, is, you know, some parents will be hesitant to do this, but as one who is truly in charge, you have to teach them that you require obedience because God says we must require obedience to him and to parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's the first commandment with, the only commandment with a promise that your days may be longer on earth. Ephesians chapter 6. Okay? So, make sure that they know obedience is required. It's not a thing where they play around it. No. You will not be doing them a service if you do not require obedience to God and indirectly to you. So, God has given us a duty to perform. So endorsement of our children should not be our focus. Discipline is an expression of love. How? 
Because when we discipline, we address issues of character. That's character development, personality, and the honor of God. Don't see discipline as something that you can, you can, do, or with, you, you can do away with. No. It's a loving thing. Okay? And it helps in character development. It helps them in honoring God. It helps develop even their personalities. We are God's agents to show the need for God's grace and forgiveness in the family. And look to God for strength and wisdom in this task. We can't do it by our power, my friends. We look to Him. It's a whole ministry, parenting. To do it the biblical way is very serious. So, you're in charge in a couple of ways. I want to highlight next few minutes as we go on break. You're in charge in the dialoguing that you have with your kids. In the parent-child dialogue, you're in charge. And this man actually highlighted something from his book, similar to what I did in my book, right? In my little pamphlet. He gave an example of a father and child talking. Let me read it to you. Father says, you didn't obey, daddy, did you? That's when something has happened and discipline is about to take place. You did not obey, daddy, did you? Child says, yes. Child says, no, I did not obey. Father says, do you remember what God says daddy must do if you disobey? Child, father, uh, um, child says, spank me. Okay? And father says, that's right, I must spank you. If I don't, then I would be disobeying God. You and I would be wrong. That would not be good for you or for me, would it? The child reluctantly says, no. I know this is controversial, especially here in the U.S. But I, I urge you, if you get that book right, read his arguments and decide for yourself. We must be humble and apologize also when we are disciplining. Remember the two aspects I mentioned in the beginning. We communicate a lot with the child. This is what this father is doing, right? And we discipline. Communication and the rod go together. In order to be able to wisely shepherd the heart of your child, the two must go together. You can't discipline out of anger. You can rush to it. And they see when you're angry and you're taking the rod because you're so angry. Wait until you're calm and try to do it by way of communicating and dialoguing as one who's in charge. You do that. So we must be humble also on our part. Sometimes it's us that went wrong. As you communicate, you apologize and ask for forgiveness when we sin against our children also. So it's not just a one-way street when you're always saying, God says I should do this to you. But you're saying sometimes, Oh, I've not done my part. And I like the way this man says it in his book. He says, he gives an example on how this should go. The dialogue between a father and a child, a mother and a child, when the father is wrong, not them wrong, but you wrong at this time. He says, on many occasions, I've had to seek forgiveness of my children for my anger and my sinful responses. I've had to say, son, I sinned against you. I spoke in unholy anger. I said things I should not have said. I was wrong. God has given me a sacred task and I've brought my unholy anger into this sacred mission. Please forgive me. We must be able 
as we take charge to also make sure that we are humble enough to ask for forgiveness, to apologize to them, and to help them. This is a good segue to prepare us for the next session, but follow closely. As we prepare for the next session, we'll be talking about the right kinds of goals to have in parenting and the right and the biblical methods of discipline. Let's examine those goals real, real quickly. Our goal is to lead our children to God. Don't forget that. And not to his not to to his own resources, like his own ways of coping with his problems, but to God always. God word. God word is the goal. Okay? And to obey and perform for God's approval, not for the approval of his parents or other people. All to the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. Okay? So that's an important goal to have in mind as we prepare for the next session. Always to lead our child to God. Second, if you teach your child to use their abilities and talents to make their lives better, without reference to God, will turn him away from God. So everything you do, God word, try to make sure that they know it's for God's glory and for their good. So reworking our goals will be important, therefore. Number one, how you rework your goals, it's our tasks to faithfully teach our children the ways of God. It's the Holy Spirit's task to work through the Word of God to change their hearts. Don't forget that. Second, the book of Proverbs can be a good way to rework your goals. This man would often read, you know, a proverb to his kids. He likes to, he liked to do that. You know, his practice was to read one-third of a chapter of the Proverbs before school each day to his children. And he would often act out passages in the Old Testament when his children were little. You're reworking the goals. You want it to be about God. These are some practical ways to do it. Okay? God's word there, being there, reading the Proverbs, acting out scripture. Even if you look like a fool to them, do it. Do everything you can to be that agent that God has decided for you to be in that home. And thirdly, as far as reworking the goals, encourage your children to see and and, 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 and help in the needs of those around them, okay? So you are not only acting out scripture to them, reading it to them, you're encouraging them to also see other people's needs and to help them provide help to these people so they can be involved. Now, as you're doing this, believe me, you'll be doing just the right thing. Encourage them to seek to make peace among their friends when there's fighting going on. Do everything you can to make sure your kids are involved in, in, in fostering peace in the home, in the environment, wherever they are at school, and make sure to, you know, to, um, to, to read scripture to them, to reinforce why, you know, to them why they do what they do. Now, if you have some time, we will read this in the next segment, Romans 12, 17 to 21. It teaches us that the only weapon strong enough to overcome evil is good and to leave vengeance to God. Help your kids as you setting goals for your, for your parenting, you're working with them practically, you're sending them Godward all the time, help them to start doing these kinds of things because the goal is God's glory and the good of themselves and others around them. So, last but not least, before we take our break, would learn to discard unbiblical methods, okay? Just discard those methods. Don't, don't, don't fall for them. Don't fall for them. Uh, one of the, the unbiblical methods I think we need to discard 
is this thing of unquestioningly accepting unbiblical methods that our parents used to parent us. We have to discard that. We have to question some of those things used on, 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 in light of Scripture to make sure that they are biblical. Okay? These methods were used by our parents, and sometimes it seems, the end always seems to justify the means, right? We turned out to be good. Maybe nothing was really bad with their method. I didn't turn out so bad. Therefore, I'll just repeat what my parents did to me. Sometimes we need to question. Sit and question the methods you're using. Just because they used it on you doesn't mean that it's good and, and, and godly. Second point on discarding the methods, positive reinforcement is something we do so much. Guys, I know you have to go on a break right now, but don't miss out on this. Please, please. This thing of positive reinforcement is very psychological. We reinforce positive behaviors. We try to make sure that we give them some goodies when they do good. It makes people focus on behavior modification. It makes kids just modify their behavior to get a reward. That is very dangerous. It's a popular, psych popular psychology method which I believe motivates kids for money or things. You know, and, and, and then, you know, sometimes parents even make contracts with the kids. If you do this, I'll do this. And all of that. It's not altogether bad, but you have to be very careful with those things. Because behavior modification when you pursue it, doesn't focus on heart transformation. Okay? The heart is instead trained to be greedy and, and, and focused on its own self-interests and obtaining rewards than pleasing God, than glorifying God. You have to watch out for when you say things like, you know what? Do this and I'll give you this. If, you, if, if you're a good boy today, you have candy. Because that could also lead to training their hearts in the wrong direction. And last, third, almost last, last bit one, emotionalism. Emotionalism, how's the right way to pronounce Emotionalism. Or just emotion regulation. You find yourself talking to a child. Catch this. This is really important. And a good example this man gave in his book is a, 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 of, an, of an emotional focus when you're trying to discipline your child or help your child, which does not go down to the heart. It just stays with the emotions. Is this. Give an example of a young child at the airport with his mom. This child was like screaming and asking for things, and the mom tried to appease the child, you know, and the child would not be appeased. And the child kept screaming, and finally the mom just lost it. And she just began yelling at the child and screaming at the airport. And she used words like, I hate you. I will leave you. You're not going with me. I'll leave you at this airport. I don't want you in my life. And said all these bad things to the child. And the child suddenly stopped screaming and began to beg his mom, her mom. And, you know, and everyone was watching them. And mom picked up her stuff and left the child there. Maybe five, six-year-old child. I don't know how old. And left the child and said, I don't want you in my life anymore. And the child began to follow his, her mom and begging the mother. And pr promising to never behave like that again in public. And then this author finds them much later. The mom was still screaming at the child. She just would not let go. And the child was still begging his mom after many minutes had gone. And his point was that when we use emotionalism to try to correct our children, it's also bad. Now, you can regulate their emotion in a public place, in a temporal way, but make sure you follow up quickly to correct that later. Because if you just leave it at that, that could be a problem. 
Sometimes punitive correction, such as hitting or yelling or grounding to keep the child under control through the negative experience of punishment, does not really require an ongoing interaction of conversation, discussion with them. If you do these shortcuts, you can change their emotion, but you will not do the work of changing the heart, which comes through conversation and dialoguing and explaining to them. Some people don't use hitting or, or, or harsh words. They just look for ways to shame the child. Shaming or creates, you know, you know, scenarios where the child can just feel like really bad and not want to do that thing anymore. That does not help also, especially in light of you trying to parent a child for the Lord's glory. So, the child may de develop lifelong desires to please people, please parents, or even become rebellious after they leave home because they realize it's not sustainable. And lastly, some people don't use these methods. They just use a mixture of methods, what he calls erratic eclecticism, okay? No consistency, just skips around to different methods of, of parenting. No real goal as to want to change the heart. If this works, they hear it today, they use it. They hear this one tomorrow, they use it. They're just all over the place. When you do that, my friends, that may be problematic. And you want to try the best you can to not be eclectic like that. So, it's so important, therefore, to watch out for the things you pick up from popular psychology books and other parents and other things out there on television. Come back to the scriptures and focus on what the Lord says about Child, give me your heart. It's, his, it's the heart of people he's after. So once he has your heart, he has your behavior. You also go for the heart of your children. Go for the heart of your children. You will see true change happen as the heart, which is the root, is changed. The fruits begin to be different. The child has something to run in life with. Amen? God bless you. I'll be coming back to talk to you on just... I really, I really want you to, to, to be back here on time because I want, to, I want to look into just embracing biblical methods such as biblical ways to communicate with your child. You notice we talked about communication yesterday. It's really a child that's angry. How do you communicate with a child? Not just that, but also, you know, um, uh, the many types of communication that we have and how to use them. Um, then also a life of communication with your child, developing that. There are other things that we'll look into, uh, but I want you to be back bright and early as far as just next few minutes so we can enter into those. Let us pray.